0: For Arizona Public Media, I'm Mark McLemore, and this is Arizona Spotlight. Coming up, I'll talk with composer Burt Bacharach, visit a vineyard in southern Arizona founded by three former pilots, and look back at some movies loosely inspired by the story of John Dillinger. That's all next on Arizona's Spotlight.
1: The look of love.
0: It's difficult to imagine a musical career more successful than Burt Bacharach's. He was born in Kansas City, but grew up in New York. He says he was first truly inspired by the music he heard when he used a fake ID to see Dizzy Gillespie and Charlie Parker perform on 52nd Street. Now at age 86, Backrack has written and produced more than 70 top 40 hits, been awarded multiple Grammys and Oscars, and keeps busy collaborating with artists including Elvis Costello, Adele, and Dr. Dre. He'll be playing Tucson next Wednesday as a part of the Tucson Jazz Festival. He started our conversation by telling me about his disappointment over getting rained out for a show last month in San Francisco.
1: Um, we just played uh, San Francisco. It was our last date, which was in December, with the San Francisco Symphony. It's a great orchestra, great hall. And this year we played the first concert, and it was fantastic. And then the next day, the storm had killed San Francisco. I mean, it knocked out Power Grid did the concert the second night I mean there was so much rain and so much stuff was down You know, it would have been a downer command and, and have 500 people there. well, you know, and you say to yourself, what are you guys even doing here?
0: when everybody stays home and listens to their Burt Bacharach on vinyl. But I guess yeah. if the power's out, you might not.
1: I do believe.
0: I really like to interact with the album. You know, I like to hold it, read the liner notes, see the picture. That's a big loss when we, we, you know, we lost the artwork, lost
1: the um, liner notes, and now um, who played percussion on the third track? (laughs) No, my glasses won't work. I better get a magnifying glass. (laughs) Yeah. And there were some really creative people doing artwork.
0: And 12 by 12 is a really good size for art. You can sort of... uh, connect with it in a very easy way. The five-by-five five of a CD cover, just not quite the same. But there are still some talented young artists who have done great things in that format, too.
1: Yeah, but it's, it's limited. And pretty soon that's going to be
0: gone, too, you know? There's not going to be CDs. When it comes to finding a singer to, to sing your songs, what do you look for the most?
1: Certainly musicality. and certainly. Um,
0: well, tell us what you, th- you call musicality.
1: knowing when they're flat and knowing
0: Singers who put the song first rather than themselves. I mean the fact that Gladys doesn't have a record out
1: like every year. And I mean with that voice. This is a voice, this is a dream voice. This (laughs) should be heard every day, you know? This will make you feel good every day. in New Orleans and he didn't have to stay with the same playlist that was given out
0: Let me ask you about writing your autobiography, um, which just came out a couple of years ago now, uh, Anyone Who Had a Heart. Yeah. What sort of things did that shake loose for you as you mm, retraced your steps through life?
1: Well, it was something that I had avoided doing for a couple <laughs> of years before.
0: So honesty was important to you and That's interesting. That's that you look at it that way. us about a time when your music came back to you in a surprising way. Being in a a little bar in Italy, you
1: know, or a resort down on the coast, and um, hearing the piano player playing your songs. Playing them pretty well, you know.
0: And do you think he was aware you were there? Maybe not Burt Bacharach promises as many hits as he can squeeze into one concert on Wednesday, January 28th at the Fox Tucson Theater. It's part of the Tucson Jazz Festival, and we have a link for information at azpm.org. In our next story, produced by Mitchell Riley, we'll meet three men who became lifelong friends in midair, serving in the U.S. Air Force. Now retired, together they own and operate the Flying Leap Vineyards in southern Arizona. It's a labor of love that finds these former pilots making their living from the earth. We'll start with co-founder Mark Barris.
2: The Arizona wine industry has been around since the 16th century when the Spaniards planted grapes over in the the Santa Cruz River Valley, and it really got going here in the early 80s. This is 100% Arizona Grenache, man. Grenache is the most widely planted grape on planet Earth. It's also the second most common wine in the state of Arizona. We've deliberately withheld water from them uh, to desiccate them, to get the plants to struggle. So what you're looking at is fruit that's struggled. We do that to do two things, concentrate sugar and acid. And the result are grapes that have an unmatched, unparalleled flavor and a nice, tart, strong punch of acid to them. And that's just winemaking gold, man. Tastes good, it makes food taste good. Makes your life taste good, man. And all of that wonder starts in the vineyard. First fruit will be shuttled to the winery here in about half hour when our first trailer truck arrives. We'll get it out. This fruit will be fermenting within four hours. You're in Elgin, Arizona, south of Tucson, about 50 miles, up in the high country about 5,000 feet.
0: Mark Barris is joined by his friend and business partner, Mark Moeller.
2: Arizona's only
3: American viticultural area. That's
2: right, you're along one of the most famous wine trails in the country.
3: We have six and a half acres of planted vineyards out back here. And this is our chief winemaking facility, as well as our tasting room for our uh, local customers and customers coming from literally all around the state and all around the country, actually. The three points of the logo represent myself and Mark and uh, our other main business partner and lifelong friend, uh, Tom Kitchens, who's actually outside right now, heaving grapes into a crusher de-stemmer. So the three of us, we all met each other at the Air Force Academy. The logo also looks a little bit like a propeller, which is an homage to our flying career.
2: We were 17 years old and we were in parachuting school at the Air Force Academy, Colorado Springs, Colorado. And we were in the very first week of our summer there where we were learning how to do parachute landings. Anyway, we just, you know, we hit it off. We were just babbling all day about things. And believe it or not, the first connection he and I had was music. We found that we, we both liked the same music. Green blue, green blue, green blue, green blue, green. <laughs> yeah. That's me tumbling as I go out of the right, airplane. You see sky, oh, earth, whoa, whoa. sky, you're, earth, right? You're flopping around like a rag doll. You know, you're like, well, you're just trying to stabilize in the air. And, oh.
3: That was the first, my first <laughs> experience jumping out of a plane. I wasn't scared the first time. I was scared the second time.
2: We listened to a lot of punk rock. He loved the Dead Kennedys. You know, Black Flag. We liked all that stuff. And it was just, uh, you know, instant connection.
3: There are certain things that bring people together, and this was one of those things, this like common interest we had in the same types of music.
2: I initially started flying transport. That was my first assignment with C-5s. Didn't do it for very long. He flew C-5s too. Um, But I I went, and I was an instructor for many years, and I went into special ops. Flew a very highly specialized helicopter at the time, low altitude penetration into denied airspace, our primary mission was infill and exfill of special ops forces. There is mostly down in the Balkan War, Africa, hot spots over in that part of the world. It's a miserable, rotten business. and You know, the the, the more infrequently we can go to war, the better. But when we do, we need to do it right professionally.
3: I fortunately had a, a much, much less, uh, shall we say, dangerous and uh, crazy flying career. <laughs>
2: Cappuccino. No, no,
3: no, not quite. But uh, for the last seven years of my Air Force career, I got to fly around some very interesting people. Everybody from the Vice President on down, Secretary of State, Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, First Lady, and a host of Congressmen and Senators as well. Got to see many different parts of the world. It was just a fantastic opportunity.
0: The third partner in the Flying Leap Trio is Tom Kitchens.
3: Yeah, Kitsch, boy, yeah. I, t- I tell you what, he... He's our he, go-to guy, yeah, he's he, our... he kind of does everything. He does it all. Probably good, huh, to? You know, he's gonna open up our Bisbee store tomorrow. Um, you know, he helps with the customers, he does festivals for us, and he's just, uh, just a really, really great friend. He's just a big, lovable, just a big, lovable guy. We're the best of friends,
2: but we are radically different from each other. But you can see this nice,
3: rich, black, oily color
2: here. He's more of that meticulous Fantastic. scientist, that make thoughtful make artist that he is. And so winemaking was perfectly uh, fit for Mark. And so he took on the, the role of, of our chief winemaker. On any given weekend, him and Rolf are oh, here yeah, with purple your, hands. Yeah. And then I run the vineyard. Oh, yeah. And I, I, I make sure that, the, that, the, that uh, our vines are nourished, planted on time that they're pruned properly, that the vineyards are, are kept secure, that our equipment's maintained, that are you know, on and on and
3: on. I mean, that's a ripe right grape. You see how rosy it is? Yeah. It's a really amazing, wonderful, and, and perfect period of way collaboration. to uh, have our own independent ways of, of doing things, but then coming together. 2013. Cheers. So it's actually- a long time ago in, a, in ancient Greece, one of the uses for wines was like literally to loosen the tongue and join in in a symposium, right? So the, the, the group a group of people, you know, intellectuals or philosophers. I know, By the old Air
2: Force rules, I have to insist on eight hours of crew rest. So. To
3: basically get to the point where they were having open discussions with each other, but not getting too inebriated where the discussion would just completely fall apart. I want to try some of this wonderful uh, 2009 Sangiovese um, that has that uh, that dried fruit and nut characteristic and uh, gosh you guys are slow. I'm already on my next one.
2: Here, I love I wine because number one, I'm in the wine business with my best friends. you know I get to work every day with people I've grown up with. <laughs> what? We've been out snowshoeing in New Mexico with a bottle of our wine and just crack it open and drink it like. Like the old days, it doesn't matter. It's all fun. It's all good. We're passionate about it. We love it. There's nothing better than wine. Man, crazy ants. Oh eights. God,
3: yeah. Good old punk rock. Yeah. yeah, that was our. A, great start. a bad day here at the winery is actually a, a pretty good day because you're doing what you love. You get to be around people that you really that you really care about, and then when customers come through the door, you know, hopefully you're making their lives a little bit brighter as well. Literally building something from the ground up. You know, and maybe being able to pass that, that on down. I want to be around people that add something to your life, and Mark definitely adds a lot to my life.
2: I got 27 friends killed in the war. You know, I've come close to to losing my own life several times, and I don't take any day for granted, period. Dot. I, I knew this guy when he had hair and he was 17. You know, and he. <laughs> one of us will see each other on our deathbed. You know, and just if I can just go through my life and and have those rich, extraordinary experiences surrounded by the people I care about, doing what I love to do, I will consider that a successful, rich life.
0: Our visit to the Flying Leap Vineyards was produced by Mitchell Riley. You can see a version of the story you heard online on the Arizona Spotlight page at azpm.org. A figure that loomed large in America's imagination during the golden age of film noir was John Dillinger, the first criminal labeled Public Enemy number 1 by the FBI. In January of 1934, Dillinger and his gang inadvertently made history in Tucson when their getaway was interrupted by a fire at Hotel Congress. Their capture is an event Tucson is still commemorating 81 years later. Next, film writer Chris DeShiel looks at three Dillinger-inspired films to see how fact was transformed
4: by fiction. There have been three major films about Dillinger. The first was made in 1945, called Dillinger, naturally, and starring quintessential tough guy Lawrence Tierney.
0: Remember Scarface? Remember Little Caesar? The enormity of their crimes was exceeded in real life by the man you're now looking at, John Dillinger. His smile hid violent passions, terrifying hatreds, and sudden death.
4: It was produced at Monogram, one of the so-called Poverty Row studios that cranked out movies dirt cheap. It shows, too. All the rooms have the same nondescript look, and the film uses backdrops frequently in lieu of sets. Directed by the workmanlike Max Nussick, it fits right in with the bleak post-war crime films that later earned the label film noir. Dillinger moves its grim story along at a crisp pace, It's amusing to see how, other than a few details, such as the stop in Tucson and Dillinger getting shot outside a theater, the script doesn't bother to follow the real story at all, but makes everything up. The people in Dillinger's gang, his girlfriend, almost every detail of the story is pure fiction. In Tucson, for instance, which is signaled by a banner over a road saying, Tucson, sunshine capital of the West, the film has Dillinger being set up by his partner to get captured at a dentist's office after being immobilized by laughing gas. Tyranny plays the title role as pure sociopath. There are no likable people here. Nobody really cares for or trusts anybody else in this movie. In a way, it's typical of the crime-doesn't-pay moralism of the old-fashioned crime picture, but it also has something of the hopelessness and brutal cynicism of film noir. The camera turns away at the climax during violent scenes. Standard practice in those days, but done rather well here. It actually makes the violence much more shocking. In 1973, John Milius made another version, once again called Dillinger, and starring the veteran character actor Warren Oates in the title role, portraying Dillinger as a sort of grown-up child playing at being a criminal. This script sticks more closely to history, with Michelle Phillips on hand as Dillinger's girlfriend Billy and, surprise, Richard Dreyfuss, before he became a star, showing up as Babyface Nelson.
0: All right, everybody, point right where you are, this is a robbery. Don't nobody get nervous. You ain't got nothing to fear. You're being robbed by the John Dillinger gang. That's the best arrest. This could be one of the big moments in your life. Don't make it your last.
4: This time, the Tucson arrest happens, inexplicably, at a sort of outdoor hootenanny. The picture also gets the chronology of who gets killed when all mixed up in order to accentuate the drama. Milius uses an offbeat, laconic style to depict the Depression as a time of easy morals and casual cruelty. It's obviously inspired by Bonnie and Clyde, and it really cranks up the violence. The director seems to be enjoying his newfound freedom to show as much blood as possible.
0: It was a war, and like in any war, there were legends glorifying heroes and villains alike. But somehow, the most glorified of all was the nation's deadliest public enemy, Warren Oates, as the man whose treacherous cunning baffled every law officer in the Midwest.
4: Although Warren Oates' raw, understated style is a pleasure, we never really get to know Dillinger. The film is narrated by Ben Johnson as the FBI agent Melvin Purvis, who brings Dillinger down. And this creates a lopsided dramatic effect. The most accurate version, historically, was made in 2009, Public Enemies, directed by Michael Mann, and starring Johnny Depp, who plays Dillinger as a smart man, a few words, who gets off on being daring and reckless.
0: What is it exactly you do for an event?
4: John Dillinger,
2: of banks. That's a serious thing to say to a girl you just met. What else do you need to
4: know? The director's use of digital video instead of regular film Gives the picture a kind of rough immediacy, as if somebody had traveled back in time with a camcorder and just happened to be in the right places. Dillinger is seen as the last example of individual rebellion before crime became organized crime. Depp gets the walk and the expression's right, although there's not much of a sense of a real person behind all the mannerisms. Christian Bale has less to do as the straight-arrow FBI man Purvis. Despite a basic callousness, Dillinger is given some fatal qualities of loyalty and passion, particularly in his attachment to Billy, played here by Marion Cotillard. The Tucson Arrest follows the actual history for a change. But once again, the chronology is jumbled near the end of the film in order to allow a big, exciting shootout. Hell the whole country thinks you're a damn hero. Robin Banks is getting tougher. We're having too good a time today. We ain't thinking about tomorrow.
0: Yeah, well, you ought to.
4: From the early days of film, we've seen a gradual progression in the romantic depiction of outlaws. In the case of Dillinger, we started in the 1940s with a sneering brute who turns into a sort of grandiose dreamer in the 70s, and then in the 2000s ends up a devil-may-care antihero. In each era, we get the criminal that matches our American worldview. I find it interesting that nobody has fully succeeded in fashioning a believable character around Dillinger. Someone once remarked that evil is always fascinating in fiction and goodness boring while the opposite is true in real life. The movies project a lot of exciting themes onto men like Dillinger, when in reality they were probably not much more than common thugs. For Arizona Spotlight, this is Chris DeShiel. Thank you for
0: listening to Arizona Spotlight. The show originates from the AZPM Radio Studios. The production engineer is Jim Blackwood. The music is by Calexico. I'm producer and host Mark McLemore.